and I needed more support and guidance. And so they ended up saying, we think you know, you'd be a better fit somewhere else, which was absolutely devastating to me. I mm-hmm. thought the rug had been pulled out from under me. Hi, this is Michael Kahn, and welcome to a new episode of the Thriving Lawyers podcast. I am one of the hosts of this podcast, and today I will be interviewing my co-host, Chris Osborne. Uh, Some of you uh, hopefully heard our last podcast where Chris interviewed me about my my lawyer story and the journey that I've taken from law to counseling to presenting uh, back to counseling. Um, But I'm going to ask Chris some questions about his journey. And let's go right ahead with that. Chris, welcome. Thanks. Uh, thank you for having me, I guess. <laughs> but I sort of made the choice, too. <laughs> Chris, what motivated you to go to law school? And if this is a different answer, what motivated you to become a lawyer? That's a great question. I think I was always interested in ideas from a young age. I can recall, I think I remember the first lawyer I met, uh, a gentleman named Robert Goldsmith, who at the time was practicing in Albany, Georgia, the town that my mother and sister and I had just moved to after our parents' divorce. And mom had a friend, and she was marrying this guy, and he was the first person I met who was a lawyer or knew anything about what lawyers did, except I don't know if even I'd seen much on TV by that point in time. It was well before Law and Order. And I was intrigued that he defended people who were charged with crimes. I remember asking him at, like, you know, 12 years old, so do you represent people who are guilty? And that, to me, was kind of very bizarre. I uh, couldn't imagine you would do that, and he had a you know, decent explanation for that. But somewhere along the way, I got interested in, I really thought I wanted to do criminal prosecution because I was good with arguing, good with writing. People always said, oh, you should be a lawyer. I liked arguing, maybe a little too much. And I got in my head, okay, that's a professional career. Smart people do that. I'm smart. I like being on my feet. So that sounds interesting to me. I'm not sure really where it cemented. Uh, so then I went to law. Uh, I went to, to undergrad at Chapel Hill, and I double majored in poli sci and English because that's what I um, thought was a good combination for law school. But I had a real passion for English literature in particular. I liked that. I toyed with the idea of maybe going to grad school for English. Toyed with going to some kind of seminary or something like that, or getting some kind of joint degree. Uh, and I, I flirted with journalism a little bit and thought, okay, writing—that's another way to do journalism. And I didn't like journalistic style of writing. Really, is what I decided. And so law school seemed like the best path. And at the time, again, all I could really envision as far as being a lawyer was being a prosecutor. And tell me about, you hear about that uh, law school trains you to be a lawyer, uh, trains you to think like a lawyer. And you also hear about law school can kind of change folks and lead lead them to have some maybe poor self-care habits. And I, I wonder whether you, what you experienced in law school. Did you, did you experience any of that that you then, uh, when you were a lawyer, you, you had some bad habits already coming out of law school? Well, uh, we need to back up there. I didn't have the greatest self-care habits going into law school, actually. <laughs> <laughs> law school didn't have much to corrupt uh, on my part because, okay. I mean, other than I was, uh, I've always been um, essentially a teetotal, that's because of some sordid family history that, so I did not drink. Uh, so I had that, I guess, going for me. But 
I was not in the habit of regular exercise. Like most college students, my sleep patterns were abysmal. Pulled more than the occasional all-nighter, finishing a paper or studying, cramming for a final. Uh, I remember one particularly horrible instance where I had two exams in one day. I think one was some kind of poli-sci regarding world conflict, and the other was a Shakespeare exam. And I, I, I pulled an all-nighter studying for both of them. I fell asleep in the middle of the Shakespeare exam. I mean, literally, uh, you know, it, the, the stuff I wrote on the paper just was not even legible, comprehensible even right. by me. So I didn't have great habits going into law school. If anything, I got a little bit more disciplined, partly because I was intimidated by the workload. And I heard people saying, hey, you really have to kind of you know dive in and keep up. And then I also got married during my second year of law school, or right at the beginning of second year. And so my wife was in grad school and interning and working and and so I was learning to adapt to having somebody else's rhythm of uh, daily life. And my wife was a runner, and she liked running, and she kind of got me started, you know, with jogging. And we did that something for fun. We, we did bike riding for fun. And so I would say, as compared to undergrad law school, probably, you know, I improved my self-care. I think where it really then fell back apart again was probably as a practicing lawyer, if that makes sense. Okay. Partly because the, the time factor especially once I started measuring my billable hours during the day and I could sort of calculate, well, if I go do this for a half hour, an hour, that's $150 less revenue I'll have or whatever is less than that. But, and so I felt like I had more on my plate, more to do. And, and I, so I was, you know, kind of in the office early, not staying too terribly late, but I would say as a practicing lawyer was, was where it was a lot harder. Okay. So so you're out now practicing. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your first job out of law school and where, where that led you and some of the dire the direction you went post-law school? Sure. So I thought I wanted to do prosecution, but I realized you couldn't really get a job with prosecutor prosecutor's office typically until you had already taken a bar exam. There were very few even at my law school, very few DA's office for, from around the country who would come and interview for anybody. So I realized, gosh, I'd have to decide. I, my wife and I weren't sure what state we wanted to live in. And meanwhile, I spent a summer doing some uh, at, at a firm in uh, North Carolina in Charlotte, Womble Carlisle at the time, now Womble Bond Dickinson. I spent a summer there, and I discovered they had some lawyers who were doing constitutional litigation. Like they had uh, some clients. They defended the city or county uh, of various municipalities in civil rights type cases, in cases assuming or uh, alleging excessive force, things like that. And so I had discovered, oh, you can work for a law firm and still be doing kind of constitutional, criminal, quasi-law enforcement issues. And that was what was interesting to me. So I found a small law firm that did some of that, and they did that along with other insurance defense type stuff. And so that was where I was the first two years and got a lot of trial experience, worked with some great people. Uh, but I got to where I, I didn't enjoy uh, kind of how repetitive the insurance defense litigation was and defending, you know, really small fender benders, things like that. Just it didn't really grab me. Um, and, the, and, and the proportion of the fun work to the boring work wasn't as as good as I'd have liked it to be. So from there, I actually got an opportunity. A friend of mine who is a assistant U.S. attorney told me about a uh, judge, a local magistrate, who was 
interviewing for a clerk. That judge didn't hire me, but he recommended me to the other magistrate judge and said, hey, you ought to talk to this guy. And that gentleman, Judge Carl Horn, did hire me. And that proved to be the beginning of any notion of self-care, I would say. Partly because, of course, the flexibility of being a law clerk, and I had the luxury of doing it after a couple of years of practice, but the flexibility of being a career law clerk is, of course, unparalleled, typically. Right. And this judge in particular, Judge Horn, was committed to you know self-care, organized. He actually you know would regularly go running at lunchtime. He had people he'd meet up with at the Y. So very socially engaged. It was a it was a full on affair. And, and you know once I started clerking for him, it was it was not like whether I would come. I was I was going to come, basically. Well, that's that's interesting. If I can interrupt, yeah. Um, a couple things we talked about. You and I talked about in, in many of our workshops the importance of culture. And in fact, the ABA task force report is directed more to the um, stakeholders, not the individuals as much. And, Good point. And speaks to the importance of culture. So you you benefited from, now it was only one, one guy, but he was setting the culture for the entire staff. He really did. Um, and what was great about that too was at the time, he had started giving a talk every now and then on uh, 12 habits or 12 steps actually to restoring fulfillment and the practice of law. And he ended up writing a book for the ABA called Lawyer mm-hmm. Life, 12 Steps right. Towards Greater Professional Success, Happiness. I don't remember the exact title of it, but I got to interact with him some on that uh, manuscript as he was working on it. And, and that was my first introduction to a lot of the statistics and information at that time. This was 1998, 99. He had compiled a great deal of what research there was, what articles there were at that time about lawyer burnout, about lawyer stress, about dissatisfaction, unhappiness in the profession. And he was a pretty vocal advocate for you've got to do something uh, to, to not just go along with the rat race, do what everybody else is doing. Uh, and if you don't care for yourself, you're not going to survive. And, and here's kind of the proof of it. Uh, and so that was sort of, I, I hadn't thought about it in, in a while, but that was my introduction to, you know, even stepping outside, because I got none of that in law school. Nobody in law school ever said, oh, by the way, this is a super hard, demanding job. There are days you're going to hate it. It's going to suck, right. and you're going to be questioning why you did it. Right. Nobody really prepared us at, uh, at my law school for that. And, Nor mine. Right. And, and it's, you know, I think that's, that, that's somewhat changing when I was a professor here at the Charlotte School of Law later in life. Uh, we had that on the radar. We were trying to in, in, instill that in our, in our students. That was the, the, the eye-opener for me, really. I knew I didn't want to be at a uh, huge law firm necessarily with the higher billable hour requirements because I knew, you know, family was important to me. Uh, we started having kids. Actually, we had our first child while I was working for Judge Horn, which was a fantastic lineup of, of circumstances as well. But after a couple of years there, I, I decided I wanted to get back into actual law practice, both uh, for financial reasons, but also just kind of, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I could have stayed with him a long time. Uh, the, the law clerk who took my place, and he's still there. <laughs> it's been 20-something years. But wow. I, the, the nice thing was I got what I wanted in terms of a clerkship of being able to see all different kinds of lawyers practicing, see different uh, folks and how well they did at, and, and what kind of subject matter uh, they, they engaged in, and ended up joining a very small law firm I uh, had two offers uh, that I was very interested in when I was uh, leaving, uh, one from a larger firm called Horak Talley, about a middle, mid-sized firm, and the other was a small law firm of only about, I think I was going to be the fourth lawyer there. 
And I took that option because it was the smaller one, and it was a buddy of mine from college was joining some of his colleagues who had all left the same large firm in town, uh, and they were trying to do you know boutique litigation firm, uh, high quality litigation at the level of where they had practiced, but in a small setting. So that sounded ideal to me. It did not work out to be ideal. I ended up there was just kind of a significant personality disconnect. I could not describe it as as that at the time. I knew something was up. I did not feel like I was supported, but I couldn't even have given those words to it. I just knew that uh, the the partners that I was working with were, they seemed pretty stressed, and, and particularly stressed if they had to coach me or mentor me or show me something. It was like, right. you're supposed to know this already. We thought we were hiring somebody who could do this right. already. And I had a lot of litigation experience, and I had federal you court. You were more pre- of a more of an inconvenience when you uh, needed. Yeah. At some point in time. Yeah. I started to feel like an inconvenience and, and like mm-hmm. it was a pain in the, in the rear end. They, they just didn't want to have to, to shape and develop and mentor somebody. And again, I had tried cases. There were a lot of things I knew and I could write the heck out of a, you know, any kind of federal brief or anything like that. But as far as representing business clients, that was kind of new. Hadn't really done that that much. There were certain aspects of landlord tenant law. I was getting involved in construction law that were new and I needed more, support and guidance. And so they ended up saying, we think, you know, you'd be a better fit somewhere else, which was absolutely devastating to me. I Mm -hmm. thought the rug had been pulled out from under me. I I had known, you know, this isn't working out great, but I'm going to talk to them about it, try to see what we can do, what we can fix. And I, I didn't really get a chance to do that. What ended up happening is my, uh, so our second child was born. And then this is all in the fall of 2000. Second child was born, and then my grandmother passed away. I had to go out of town for that over Thanksgiving. I delivered the eulogy at her funeral service after having been up all night with an awful stomach virus that just had everybody, went through everybody in our family. Um, my wife ended up running out of the funeral service to get sick while, I, while I'm giving the eulogy. Oh, my uh, it gosh. Was, it was not my words. Uh, she told me later for sure. And I came back to town from that, just this sort of gut-wrenching. We'd traveled with an eight-day-old child, which we had never planned to do, and we are just exhausted, gut-punched, and we had said to somebody, I think at church, like, I just can't imagine anything else that could happen. We feel like the biblical character, Job, just everything has happened. And two days later, I go into my office, and the partners, two of the partners, not the one who's my friend, take me down the hall and say, this isn't working out. And so, so, I, so let me let yeah. me interrupt just for a second. So you went from a good culture with Judge Horn to not so good with uh, the small law firm in dealing with all this stuff. To, where did you get support? Uh, that's a great question. Not as much within the re- legal community. I'm trying to remember if I even talked to Judge Horn about it as it was happening. I don't recall doing that. I think I had support primarily with my church community. I remember talking with a, uh, one of my pastor friends, and he said, you know, dialogued about what was going wrong at the small firm. And uh, he said, it sounds more like a personality conflict, something hopefully can be worked through. It's not there's, there's a disconnect here of some sort. But I really was kind of devastated. I would say I had there were a few people in in, the, in in my church community that were super helpful, but that Christmas, it basically it was you know about two weeks, three weeks before Christmas that I kind of got this news. All this other stuff had happened, and I remember it being just a dark, dark time. Uh, and I'm a pretty, you know me, I'm I'm a pretty optimistic, upbeat person. You, this is before you knew me, I guess too. 
Um, so you, you do not see me at this low point. My first stop, actually, on the way home from getting that news, before I had even told my wife what happened, I stopped off at the local uh, seminary graduate school to say, okay. oh, you know, maybe I'm just not cut out for law. Maybe I just suck as a lawyer, and maybe I should just do something different altogether. And I explored that. I went through sort of a, you know, and of course it was Christmas time, so it's a terrible time to be out on the job market. But I, I did kind of a job search. I went through a recruiting company that was, you know, placing contract lawyers. And I went back to the law firm that I had turned down the year prior and said, Correct, oh, Callie. yes, exactly. And I said, hey, I loved you guys. I just took that other offer. It hasn't worked out. Y'all still interested in hiring an associate? And they said at first, well, we're not. We've had a couple people leave. And then so I continued, you know, a couple other interviews. I actually thought I had a contract position that sounded like it could work out with the local, uh, with the staffing agency. And it was for a, a local firm that I respected and had some, had some cases with. That didn't work out, much to my surprise. And then I'm getting closer. Uh, this is into mid-January, late February. And my current employer had said, you can have some time. But the sunset was kind of running on that. Being a lame duck was just awful for me, Awful for them. And so right. I, I basically kind of got to February 15th, wasn't sure I was going to do. And I called Horak Tally back and said, look, do you guys, I'm looking at contract opportunities. Do you have any contract work I could do? And part of my thinking was, this was also, this was January of 2001. We had just had the 2000 election as everybody will recall. That's the one that we took a, a while to figure out who right. the winner was. Uh, hanging chads. Yes, hanging chads and all that. Once Bush was declared the winner, I thought at the time, well, that worked for me because I was fairly conservative leaning in my politics at the time. And I thought, well, the door that wasn't open before, maybe to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, might be open now. Mm. And I actually had an opportunity right. to, to interview with uh, the person who was appointed as the head U.S. Attorney. But he had other people in mind for the criminal spots in Charlotte and for one civil spot in Charlotte. There was some discussion, maybe go do something criminal up in Asheville. But my wife and I, with our two new kids, didn't really want to relocate. For a while, though, I thought, oh, contract work is the answer because I'd rather go be a prosecutor anyway waiting on that to, to kind of all play out. So anyway, what ended up happening is Horak Talley at that point said, yes, you actually, uh, we have a couple uh, litigators who are kind of busy and they could use some help. And so you can do some contract work literally for an hourly basis while you're working, you know, looking for anything else, looking around. I ended up starting the contract work there and I got the absolute privilege of working with two gentlemen, uh, Henry Farr III and Rob McNeil, they were like the doppelgangers of the people I had been working for. It was so bizarre, but they were glad to mentor, excited to mentor, and and really not only didn't mind developing me as a young lawyer, but, but were delighted to do it. And it was fun. It was enjoyable. And I, I really view my time at that firm as where I came back to life as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And it really is a reminder to me, in fact, you and I maybe were talking about this recently. Um, I was in a dialogue with somebody on Facebook not too long ago a young lawyer who went to the law school I used to teach at, and, and she just posted, I think I'm quitting practicing law. I'm sick of this. It's so mm. hard. And, and I can right. relate to that so closely because I was there, and I thought I'm, I just may not be cut out for this. And it turned out I just hadn't found the right fit, hadn't found the right place. Uh, I had had it. I'd had sort of an idyllic place for a while with the clerkship. Um, Judge Horn, yeah. Yeah. But uh, so Horak Talley ended up being a place where kind of self-care was possible. I'm not going to say I was great at it then, uh, but it was in dialogue with some folks there where I started figuring out, um, oh, I'm not just a messy, procrastinating person. Maybe I have something going on that's sort of hampering me. So I, that was where I figured out through 
conversations with a colleague or two that maybe I should think about adult ADD. Was that something mm-hmm. that was going on with me? It turned out it was. Uh, so a you, lot of you, you also had a. Um you were fortunate then to have a couple mentors there, it sounds like. I did, yes. Rob McNeil in particular, but really the, the, the just the environment there, the atmosphere there was incredibly supportive, incredibly mm-hmm. understanding of if you have family stuff going on, we get it. That happens to all of us, and we're going to you know, help you out. What do you need in order to be able to be you know, where your family is? We had our third child during that time. And it really proved to be super helpful later on. The real test, uh, I had become a partner and my par- practice was growing decently, but uh, my mother had a long time battle with uh, metastatic breast cancer. And we walked with her through that journey. She came up and stayed with us a fair amount. We were down in Atlanta where she lived a fair amount as well. And really the last season of uh, her life, she ended up passing away in the fall of 2010, uh, and that was a time that, again, the firm was amazingly supportive and just said, you know, you got to be there. Be there doing what you need to for your mom. And there were, you know, resources and people who could take on cases of mine or help out. Um, it was just a, 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 a really good setup, and I was really grateful for that. But it sounds like, it sounds like Chris, that you were pretty intentional about your work choices as far as all the different places you worked. You said at one point you, you you could have gone for the bigger firm, but you had chose quality of life, how you defined it, and that over working at a big firm. Typically, yes. When, again, when I had the choice, I uh, didn't always have right. the choice, but when I did, yes, I knew that I needed to make some kind of choice in that regard. I'm not sure what would have happened if I had gone to a place uh, that was a bit more demanding and a less supportive culture. I don't know, and I'm grateful I didn't, I didn't get to find out. So really, uh, that, that Hork Tally ended up being just a great place to be uh, until kind of our work with real-time creative learning experiences had started to take off. We had started doing more teaching, uh, and I worked with a business coach who helped me. Uh, actually, that was around 2000, 2009, who really helped me see that there were other things that I liked and that I resonated with beyond just what I did as a lawyer. Uh, as I started getting opportunities to present legal education programs, I found something just stirring in me that was just different. As much as I loved being in court and making a good argument or taking a good deposition, I liked educational presentation even more. And then I started to meet people. It was around, it was actually right after mom passed away uh, in 2010, I started meeting people who did continuing legal education as a regular thing. And that's when I really feel like, oh, wow, these are my people. I love being around these people. I love the collaborative nature of what we're doing in education. I love, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. Like I, you were there to see as I you know, got excited about marketing and, and selling kind of the things that we were doing. It was just, uh, that, that was where I really felt like I, I experienced some real transformation and just kind of started recognizing, yes, I fit this lawyer mold. I can do this lawyer thing, but there's also more that I like even more and want to do and, and maybe I'm uniquely you know, designed to do. So that led to a three-year stint as an assistant professor at uh, Charlotte School of Law, which was tremendous fun, very enjoyable. And then that, of course, had its upsides and downsides, but that law school didn't end up faring too well. I escaped out of there before everything went really downhill. And so since then, since 2015, I've been a 
solo slash small firm practitioner and worked with you on our continuing legal education and continuing education uh, and professional development training programs. And uh, I love bringing from that background that variety of, of experiences. That's, that's what I'm talking about in our workshops. That's what I'm uh, coming out of. And I love being able to relate to people who have been in all kinds of settings uh, because I have. And trying to, again, uh, what I love is it's, it's an ever-evolving process of figuring out what does thriving look like? What does self-care look like? What does self-awareness look like? It, it's not a one-and-done kind of thing. It's a, it's a continuing process. And I love being in dialogue with lawyers um, all around the country, really around the world about that. What is it you want to see this podcast achieve? Why, why do this? I think precisely because of that, I think as we discuss, uh, and we hear this when we're on the road presenting, when lawyers share their stories of what's hard, of what challenges they've faced and overcome, when they give each other the freedom to talk about that, when people open up and say, oh man, some days it's really hard and this is what gets me, amazing things happen. I love it when I realize, you know, I'm not the only one that was powerful for me. I'm not the only one who's having some of these challenges. And when other people make that connection and realize, oh, I'm not the only one who is struggling to juggle all this and, and figure out how to see my family enough. And maybe I want to coach my kids in their sports, but where the heck am I going to get that time? I just think the more we can hear from one another, the more we can tear down the the masks and the the facade that a lot of people seem to have up, uh, you know, or maybe nobody's doing anything like that intentionally, but it just looks from afar. I think you've got a good, you gave me a good phrase at one point in time. It's trouble if you compare the 100% of what you know about yourself to the five, maybe 10% of what you know about anybody else. You're never mm-hmm. going to win that comparison. Uh, and right. so I love helping people reveal the 80, the 90%, share the 80, 90% to see, oh, there's a lot that we have in common. And we can learn from each other, hey, here's something that works. Here's something that enabled me in my setting, whatever it is, to get a handle on this and to help this to work better. Well, I think this is probably a good place to end, Chris, and the folks will learn a lot more about you and me, but hopefully more about the folks we bring in as guests as we move along on this podcast. Thanks for letting folks know about you, Chris. And, uh, Look forward to hearing more about you as we move forward. You bet. Well, I'm, I'm looking Thanks, forward everyone. to I'm looking forward to hearing more about everyone else <laughs> rather than me. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna have fun.